guided by the word of God, guided by the wisdom of your parents. So far through the word of God, we have determined a few things. First, that God made your sex. Second, that Jesus Christ recognized a third non-sex called the eunuch. Third, that God created your biological gender, which is another way of saying your sex. And fourth, we've learned that social gender is a social construct, a non-issue. And that social gender is not a gauge of manhood or womanhood. Rather, it's just a social construct that is of very little use to the children of God. The last two Sundays, I've been confronting the false arguments of the world as it relates to the topic. And today, I'm going to continue. And then next Sunday, I'm going to, I hope to wrap this up with a talk about how we should deal with the subject in various settings, in the corporate setting, in the educational setting, among our friends, among our family, how we should deal with this subject, and how we evangelize those who are entangled in this sexual revolution of our day. But today we're going to talk about gender identity. What is it, and does it even matter? Let's start with the definition for gender identity. Gender identity is said to be one's internal perception of himself as male, female, both, or neither. And these internal experiences include your thoughts, your emotions, your physical sensations, and any urges that you notice within yourself. So what they're saying is that you gather an internal perception of your maleness or your femaleness based upon your thoughts, your feelings, your physical sensations, and any urges that you might have. When I was a young boy, I became a master at reading my mother's face. My mother had a facial expression for every situation. If we were walking together and an adult offered me candy, I could look in my mother's face and see yay or nay. She didn't have to open her mouth. Her facial expressions said a whole lot. She had a face that told me when it was okay, when it was safe, when it was dangerous. You could look in my mother's face and read your instructions. When I became a teenager, I learned another face that my mother had, and it was the face that said, okay, Calvin, you have said enough. Have you ever seen that face from your mother? Okay, you've said enough. No words necessary. She can look at me a certain kind of way, and I know, yes, ma'am. We'll pick this up some other time. I was always mesmerized by my mother's facial communication. But there was one expression that always made me laugh. And that was her facial expression of total bewilderment. The face that said, who are you? And whose child are you? And where did you come from? That face of bewilderment looking at me, 
looking at my brothers. Raising eight boys on the south side of Chicago, I probably saw that expression more than any other expression. Like the time one of my brothers thought that he was Superman and aided and abetted by my cousin, tied a rope around his neck, climbed up on the second floor railing of our back porch and prepared to jump off to fly like Superman. That was my introduction to that look of bewilderment as my mother pulled him down from the rail and stood there looking like, huh? You thought you were what? So much for your thinking. Then there was a time my brother Victor was standing in front of the washing machine. We had the old school washing machine, the round fellow, and it had those rollers where you put the clothes in and squeezes the water out of the clothes to that little roller. Anybody remember those? My brother Victor is standing here in front of the washing machine. I'm a little guy, he's a little taller than me, and he's gazing at those rollers. And he keeps taking his hand and putting it in the roller and snatching it back. And putting it, and then for some reason he felt like he was quicker than the roller and he put his finger too close. And it snatched his arm all the way into the machine. After they got back home from the hospital, mom asked him what happened. He said, I felt like I could do it, mom. I felt like I was quicker. And she gave that look, huh? What made you think that? Who are you? Whose son are you? Where did you come from? Then there was a time when I was in high school and I got completely drunk because I thought I could handle some alcohol and came home staggering up the stairs, smelling of wine. My mom took one sniff and gave me that look. I think she... I was drunk, I don't know whether she gave me the look or not. I think it was the look. Maybe it was the look of I'm gonna kill you. I don't know what look it was, but it looked like that bewildered. What, whose son are you? Hmm. My one brother thought, my other brother felt, and in my drunkenness I had a physical sensation and they were all incorrect. But according to this definition of gender identity, a person can determine their sexuality based on these three unreliable sources. My thoughts, my feelings, and my physical sensation. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can know it? As one myself who have been engaging deeply in my own thoughts and feelings and physical sensations for more than 15 years, I can tell you by experience that this is so, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and it is almost impossible to know. My thoughts and my feelings alone cannot be depended upon to make life decisions. And thoughts and feelings cannot help a person come to know or to appreciate their sexuality. Sexuality does not come from my thoughts or my feelings. My thoughts and my feelings were not designed to draw those sorts of conclusions for my life. 
But there is one aspect of thought that can play a key role in helping one understand his or her sexuality. But not surprisingly, the sexologists left this one out of the equation. And that is reason. Reason is the power of the mind to think, to understand, and to form judgments by a process of logic. The sexologist doesn't mention that one. He doesn't say you find your, sex, your sexuality by using reason. No, no, no. Don't use reason. Just as it is in false religion, logic is enemy number one to the gender identity argument. There is no push to encourage you to employ your logic in order to judge or to weigh your sexual thoughts and emotion. Don't use reason. Don't use logic. There is no effort made to help you measure the quality or the condition of your thoughts. And any person who pays close attention to their mental health realizes that the majority of thoughts that a person thinks derives not from within themselves, but from the outside world. What do I mean by that? What you see, what you listen to, and the kinds of conversations that you are exposed to become most of the stuff that your thoughts are made of. Yesterday, my wife and I were out in Shipshewana, Indiana. Say that 10 times, Shipshewana, Indiana, Amish country. And we were walking around through the general stores. And as I walked by, I saw a picture of a mouse on a piece of cheese. I didn't stop and read the sign. I didn't stop to see what the sign meant. I just saw a mouse on a piece of cheese. And I kept walking, didn't even pay it a second thought. Do you know what I dreamed about last night? A mouse walking on a big piece of cheese. What you see on the outside sometimes gets on the inside. Most of the thoughts you have are a reflection of the conversations you've been engaging in. Most of the thoughts you have are, are, are an outcome of the things you've been looking at and paying attention to. Most of the thoughts that you have do not come from your own heart. They come from outside of yourself. That's why they can't be depended on to make life decisions. Because not every thought that you have is your thought. Many of them are suggested. We know it's true. People don't pay thousands of dollars to put those signs on the highway for no reason. We know it's true. Your mind can be branded with the things it sees. And you can begin to desire McDonald's even if you just ate. If they show you that sausage biscuit with a cup of coffee. When you see it, mm, I'm so hungry. You weren't a moment ago. Something on the outside made a suggestion on the inside. That is not your thought. That is called branding. Like you brand a cow, that's what corporations do to us. They brand us with their images. The mind is like a big projector screen, if I can describe it that way. The mind is always playing movies in your head, always building one thought upon another thought upon another thought all day long. 
and the things you ponder most often and the things you expose yourself to most often eventually become actors on the movie screen of your mind. And this is partly what makes the heart so deceitful. Not that your mind is trying to deceive you, that's not the case. But that often it is very difficult to tell which thoughts emanated from within my own heart and which ones have been or are being implanted by the devil, by the world, or by my own carnal nature. Sometimes it's hard to know where your thoughts are coming from. I've given you guys the example before. You can try it when you get home. When you get home today, don't cut on the television. Sit down in the chair by yourself, close your eyes, and just try not to think for 10 minutes. And listen to the thoughts that come racing across your head. You can't even manage them. Thought after thought after thought after thought about whatever, ice cream, cookies, fixing the car, washing the dishes, whatever, vacation in Hawaii, whatever it is, you have no control. When you try to stop thinking, your mind just keeps on going. <laughs> Whether you participate or not, you can't stop thinking. Even when you're not trying to think, that tells me something. That tells me that my thoughts cannot be depended on. My thoughts are too random. Your thoughts are too random to be trusted with life decisions. But they tell you that you should choose your sexuality based upon what you're thinking in your own head. And then you take it to a school. Your eight-year-old daughter goes to school and every other day the teacher is spending five minutes talking about her same-sex marriage. Explaining to the class how uncomfortable she felt in her own skin until she finally opened up and freed herself and became the person that she was meant to be. Imagine the eight-year-old being very impressionable. Now she begins to fantasize and to imagine that kind of lifestyle. She comes home one day and she declares her gender identity to be X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. The question is, is that even her own thought? Or was it implanted from the outside? She has never had any kind, any kind of sex before, so she doesn't know what it is. She is not at the flower of her age yet, so I doubt she really, she's really having any sexual thoughts at all. But how did that thought get into her mind? She was exposed to the thought. And now the conversations are playing on the projector screen of her mind, and she is thinking that she is doing the thinking, when all the time someone else is doing her thinking for her. I'm gonna make a confession here. Shouldn't shock anybody. The first time I saw pornography, I was 11 years old. And let me tell you something. Passionate thoughts like that do not dissipate easily from the mind of a small child. Those thoughts don't just go away. Those thoughts have staying power. And their staying power has to do with the fact that they brand the mind in a way similar to being traumatized. It makes such an impression, it becomes hard to shake the thoughts, the pictures, the ideas. These kinds of sexual thoughts generate emotional energy which can cause a person to begin acting out on strong emotion, totally out of character. 
and the person's thought life begins to be shaped by external factors that were injected into the psyche through the eyes, through the ears, and into the pleasure centers of the brain. And the brain becomes encoded for a life that the person was never meant to live. Hmm. This is why King Solomon admonishes, admonishes us in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. He says, my son or my daughter, pay attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. They are not to escape from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, Solomon says, for from it flows the springs of life. In summary, what Solomon is advising his son or his daughter is to pay attention only to his moral directive to pay attention only to his prescription for living and for life. Because Solomon knows that what his son pays attention to will shape the rest of his life. Solomon recognizes that the mind is like a movie screen, so he tells his son to keep sight of my sayings. Look at my words. Play my words back in your mind. Envision what I am telling you until it becomes a part of you. Envision my sayings. Play my teachings back over and over again like a good movie. And in this way, Solomon promises that this boy will nurture a healthy moral and spiritual imagination. And he will have the kind of life that is pleasing to God and healthy for himself. Solomon's words will become the foundation for the life of his child. And his son doesn't have to walk alone and his daughter doesn't have to spend her life trying to figure out things like gender identity, which only rob her of valuable days and nights, producing nothing but turmoil, confusion, and unnecessary anxiety. It becomes a vicious cycle because the more anxiety she feels, the more often she will feel the need to return to that very sickness that is causing her so much grief. Sexual thoughts and sexual desires are more addictive, brothers and sisters, than drugs. That's true. Especially to the person who already struggles from any kind of psychological discomfort. Sexual thoughts and sexual desires are more addictive than drugs. Many people engage in sex as if it's psychological therapy. And too many people look to sex and look to sexuality to be an escape from the pain and from the struggles of life. No sex, not even sex between a man and a woman. No sex, not even sex between a husband and a wife. No sex can help you be victorious in life. Life is much more than sex. Life is so much more than sexuality. And as I'm going to demonstrate momentarily, the purpose of sex, while it is important, is at the same time a very small part 
of what we humans are called to attain to in this life. Sex is not the major question that nowadays we pretend that it is. Which really makes the word identity in gender identity a word that promises much more than it could ever deliver. Sex and sexuality is only one very small part of one's identity. It is only a natural phenomenon at its very best. It's just a natural phenomenon. And certain kinds of sex can become an abomination before God when it is used or done improperly. But at its very best, human sex is a natural phenomenon. There is no sex in heaven. Jesus said there is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. Paul the apostle said there is no male, there is no female in heaven. Why would I want to shape my identity around something that is only temporary? Build your hopes on things eternal, not on passing feelings and passing thoughts and passing physical experiences. Solomon says to his son that after he has paid strict attention only to his prescription for life, after he has played back his father's teaching a number of times, then his son has to guard the teachings that have shaped him. Solomon says, watch over your heart. And what is he watching for? The son is watching for any false teaching, any false instruction that he may be exposed to as he lives his life. Guard your heart. He is to watch over his heart because his heart is like a magnet that will attach to any new shiny object, to any new sexual philosophy, to any new feeling that promises relief from the disciplined lifestyle his dad has left him as an inheritance. Guard your heart. Don't pick up garbage. Guard your heart. Be careful what you watch on your television. Guard your heart. Be careful the kinds of conversations that you engage in because they will infiltrate your heart. They will contaminate your thoughts. They will cause you to have feelings that are against the will and the word of God. The child's heart is naturally unguarded because they haven't come to a place when they can distinguish the value of anybody's teachings. So a child will ponder whatever teaching makes them feel good. And that's what's so dangerous about the current sexual movement that we're witnessing in our society today. And that is why a young person's reports of gender identity must not be alarming and must not be taken too seriously. Because this world is feeding things into their minds that may not have grown there organically. A child's thoughts by nature come and go and swirl all around the place. The child must be taken seriously. We must take our children seriously, but their thoughts and their opinions must be weighed by the wisdom of their parents. 
Because the child does not yet possess the capacity to know beyond their feelings and their perceptions. And until the child comes of age, it is the parent's role to guard their children's hearts. To oversee what they spend time on, to oversee what they look at on the internet, what they look at on television, to oversee the kinds of music that they're exposed to. Because the world is making constant suggestions. Young people, I want you to hear me today. The thoughts and the opinions that you have when you are in a heightened state of sexual euphoria, the physical sensations, the feelings that you have when you're in a heightened sense of emotional, in a heightened emotional state, most of the time, those emotions are not true. Your thoughts are not the truth. Your emotions are not your God. God has given us the ability to think and to feel only to assist us in finding and in knowing his will. Your thoughts have been given to you to serve you to help you navigate life, but your thoughts have not been given to you to direct your life. Your feelings and emotions have not been given to you to direct your sexuality. Gender identity says exactly the opposite. It says, gender identity says that your thoughts and your feelings reflect who you truly are. Hmm. But with the majority of your thoughts and your feelings being infused into your mind from outside of yourself, how can your thoughts and your feelings possibly reflect who you truly are? They cannot. They do not. And if the whole world took this advice and everybody started living according to their thoughts and their feelings, what kind of world would this be? My goodness. What kind of world would we be living in if every man did what was right only in his own eyes? Imagine for a moment the kind of world that would be. The chaos and the violence if everyone just followed any thought they had, any feeling they had. I got to tell you, honestly, I've had some thoughts that I, no, no, no. Everybody has thoughts every once in a while where you have to control yourself. Discipline your mind. Don't allow your emotions to take control of you. Do not be controlled by your thoughts and by your feelings. If everybody did, the world would be a chaotic place. Thoughts and feelings come from too many sources to naively believe the reports that they might bring to your mind. This definition of gender identity goes on to say that by these thoughts and feelings, a person can determine their biological makeup. Now, here's where we hit the brick wall. By these thoughts and feelings, a person can determine whether they are male or female. By thoughts and emotions alone, a person can determine their maleness or their femaleness, which are scientific realities. That's the magic.
That's a lot of power that has been given to my mind. That's a lot of responsibility to be placed upon anyone's thought life. But brothers and sisters, we know it. I'm sorry I have to keep repeating this. Thoughts do not change physical reality. Emotions do not change physical reality. My thoughts cannot recreate what has already been created. Is that biblical, Pastor? Yes, that's biblical. Luke chapter 12, verse 25. Jesus asked this question. Which of you, by worrying, can add a day to your lifespan? To worry is to think. To worry is to brood over. To worry is to meditate deeply upon a thing. Jesus teaches that your thoughts cannot alter the reality of your physical existence. It cannot happen. You cannot think yourself out of being one sex and into being another sex. The mind doesn't have the power to do that. That is beyond the pay grade of the human mind. And Jesus admonishes us again in Matthew chapter 5, verse 36, when he says, Nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot, listen to this, for you cannot make a single hair, white or black. You're telling me that I can sit and think my way into being a different sex. Jesus says you can't even sit and think your way into changing the color of your hair. That's not the way reality works. You cannot alter your biological reality by thinking, by feeling. It doesn't happen that way. You can't alter it. Changing physical reality is not a matter of opinion. We do not have the power, the ability, or the authority to change our natural biological sex, not by thought, not by feelings, not according to physical sensation, but we still have not exhausted the definition of gender identity and how gender identity is supposedly formed. I saved the best for last. The definition reads that gender identity is one's internal perception of himself as male, female, both or neither. And these internal experiences include your thoughts, your emotions, your physical sensations, and the last one, and any urges that you might notice in yourself. What? Not only do they prescribe that you recreate your sex and your sexuality by thought, feelings, and physical sensation, but they say that your urges can give you a clue to your sex and your sexuality. Your urges. What is an urge? An urge is a strong desire or an impulse. And what is the biblical term for strong desire? Anybody? What is the biblical term for strong desire? Lust. Lust is a strong and uncontrollable desire. And this is where the sexologist tips their hand and says the unspoken part out loud. 
What we are being told and what children are being instructed to do is to obey their lust. Bottom line. Not only to obey their lust, but to allow their lust to become their identity. That's clever. Make your lust, make your strong and uncontrollable desire your identity. Not only is this advice unbiblical, this advice is anti-biblical, and this advice is anti-God. It flies in the face of all the Bible, the church, and the Lord has ever taught on this subject. While Paul the Apostle admonishes us to flee youthful lusts, gender identity tells us to obey and to identify strongly with our youthful lusts. Exactly the opposite of what the scripture has said. While John informs us in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, these are not from the Father. These are from the world. Gender identity says that the lust in your heart was born there. That the lust in your heart is who you truly are. But John teaches us here that the urges that you have to disobey God's commands for sex and sexuality is not who you are. Because who you truly are is not a matter of your will or your thought life or your strong desires. Your true self comes from God in the deepest parts of your being, far beyond your thoughts and your feelings and your sensation far above any earthly urges that you may notice about yourself or within yourself. I've been, I've been contemplating for 15 years, sitting quietly by myself, examining and evaluating every thought that passes by. There is a place in contemplation where you move beyond yourself and your physical sensation, and there is silence and there is no sex. I've been meditating for 15 years. I have never had a thought pass by that I could say, ooh, that was a male thought. Oh, that was a female, oh, that was a male emotion. Oh, that, that was a female emotion. I've never had that experience. Thoughts are spiritual things. Spiritual things do not have sex. Hmm. Lust is inferior to your true identity. Lust wants to usurp or to take control over your true identity so that when the sexologist invites you to bow before the imposter of gender identity, what he is really inviting you to do is to be far less than you truly are. He is asking you to relinquish the honor and the dignity that God has bestowed upon you. The identity that Jesus Christ invites you to find in him. Your urges do not determine your sexuality. God created your sex, brothers and sisters, and God directed your sexuality from the beginning. 
He did it in Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 20. The Bible says this. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal in the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. It's a very interesting scripture. He names the elephant. How you doing, elephant? You want to have a relationship? Ah, that's not for me. Hey, giraffe, how you doing? You look, you look really nice there. You're, you're too tall. That's what he was doing. Go read it when you get home. He was looking for a help me. He was looking for a companion. That's why the text says there, as he was going around naming all of the animals and the birds and every animal, there was not found a helper suitable. He was looking for a helper. He was looking for someone he could identify with in life someone that he could walk alongside in life. He was looking for his sexuality. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every animal of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. The hippo wouldn't do it, the bison wouldn't do it, the giraffe couldn't, couldn't fulfill his needs. None of them were suitable. So who decided what would be suitable for Adam? That's an easy answer. Who decided what would be suitable for, for Adam? God did. And look at how he did it. The text says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He was not involved in choosing his sexuality at all. He was snoring. He was out of it. He had nothing to do with determining his sexuality. He was asleep. And as he slept, then God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh, the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, a woman, while I was sleeping. God fashioned a woman. Mm -hmm. He fashioned the woman from the rib which he had taken from Adam. And look at what he did after he fashioned the woman. This is the first blind date in the Bible. He takes the woman to Adam. He directed Adam sexually. Stop looking at the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the giraffe. I'm going to show you what your sexuality is. God made that decision. But as it has been since the beginning of time, man wants to be God. We want to decide our own sex, our own sex. And God, I already did that. Why are you trying to reinvent the, why are you looking at the giraffe again? You haven't done that in 4,000 years. What are you looking at giraffes again for? I'm in charge, my feelings and my thoughts. And God is saying, no, I've already done that. You're making a big mistake. They're not suitable for you. God directed man's and woman's sexuality. Through the first blind date, he brought the woman to the man. But someone will say to me, well, God didn't make me that way. God didn't make me to desire the opposite sex. God made me the way that I am. And there are some Christians who believe this as well. 
God made me the way that I am. God gave me these desires and urges that I have. But the apostle James warns us in James chapter one, verse 13, and says this. No one is to say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And God does not tempt anyone. But now he explains. Each person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. This is what the sexologist is telling you. Don't make lust have to carry you away. Don't make lust have to entice you. Embrace lust. Anti-biblical, completely anti-God. You are tempted when you are drawn away of your own lust and enticed. And here's the problem with that. Then when lust has conceived, James says, then when lust has conceived, when you have taken the bait, Lust gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, sin brings forth your death. Do not be deceived, James says. My beloved brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. Your lust is not okay. You need to fight against it and not yield to the lust of your eyes and of your flesh. They will lead you astray and they will lead you to permanent disconnection from your God. Do not let your heart deceive you. Do not let the world's philosophies deceive you. Do not let your own heart deceive you because the cost is far too great. God made your sex. God made your biological gender. Jesus Christ recognized a third non-sex called the eunuch. God directed your sexuality and God firmly stands by his decision. For anyone who may be on the fence with whether these teachings are accurate, God reinforces his sovereign rule over all sexuality in a long verse found in Leviticus chapter 18. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I got to show you how deeply God is invested in your sexuality. I wanna make sure there are no questions. And if there are any questions after this sex, it is because you are unwilling to yield to the word of God. It is not because the word is imprecise. It is not because the word of God is unclear. It is because you refuse to yield to the word of God. It has to be, there is no other reason. Listen to what God says. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Verse 9. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same house or elsewhere. Verse 12, do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. Look how, how detailed he's going here. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not dishonor, verse 14, do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. 
Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. This is wickedness. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. This is detestable. Period. Period. Anyone struggling with this must be struggling with the English language because that is too clear. Period. Brothers and sisters, there comes a time where you, you have to recognize when you're dealing with God and when God is not going to move. You're not going to negotiate God into a different position that he has already established. He's not moving. And to do so, it's like Paul the Apostle said, to do so is to build again the things that you destroyed. And that is called transgression. There is no straddling the fence or struggling with this clear scripture. I can understand reasons why we want to struggle with it. I can understand why, reasons why we want to negotiate with it. Because we want to be loving. We want to be helpful. It is loving to tell the truth. There is nothing unloving about saying the truth. And we're going to talk about it next week. You don't have to go around telling anybody this. This is not for you to go around and get a trumpet and start hollering at people talking about, you sinners, you're all dying and going to hell. This is not what this is about. This is about our hearts, the children of God. Next week, we'll talk about the approach that we have toward the world, which is no different for this group as it is for any other group. There is no special treatment. But there will be no special exceptions for any sin. No matter what society says, no matter what the law says, no matter what the politicians say, we cannot give up that ground. It is not our ground to give. It is because of the fear of the world and because of the fear of culture that the church will not stand on the truth. And this fear, if we are not careful, will be the church's demise. You've heard the saying, if you give him an inch, he's going to take a mile. If you yield right here, he's coming back again with a new request for you to give up more of God's territory, to give up more of God's truth. Lust never is satisfied. It will keep pushing you. At some point, you have to take a stand and say, I do not believe that. The word of God does not support that, and I will not stand with that. But because we, we're a culture who becomes so comfortable, we're afraid of losing anything. So much to lose. And so we compromise the word of God. And this is what's exciting for me in even teaching this. Because I can feel the pressure from it. I can feel the pressure from it. And you know what I'm thinking to myself? You know, I haven't been in a good fight in so long. I've gained weight. My prayer life is slacking off. I need a new enemy to fight. Let's fight him. Let's do something. Let's take a stand somewhere. If the children of God will not stand for the truth, then what do we stand for? Paul the apostle said that the church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and the ground of the truth. There is no straddling the fence. There is no struggle for me. The Bible says it. I believe it. Here's the problem, though. In believing this, some people take this attitude of us against them. Now, I'm against people. I'm against these kinds of people. I'm against these kinds of people. I want to be clear today. 
I am not against any human soul. Whatever your practice, whatever your sexual proclivities, it doesn't matter to me, frankly, it's not even my business. I have nothing to gain by harming you or hurting you or shaming you. My role as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to simply say the truth, but to love you despite it all because God loves you in spite of it all. I love you and I love my God. And I know that if the two of you can get together, your life will be better than you ever imagined it could be. Whatever you think you're experiencing now through disobeying God, let me tell you, there is peace in Christ. There is freedom in Jesus Christ. Freedom to not have to worry about these small, minor details that the world are telling you are so pressing. It is not true. God has already set a path for you. And he says, my thoughts for you are thoughts of peace and not to do you harm to bring you to an expected end. It is my job to escort you by the preaching of the truth to that expected end. And I say these words not in antagonism against you, but in sincere love for you. I will not bow to your emotions and to your feelings and to your thoughts because that would not be good for you. That would give you the impression that you are God, which would only bind you even more. No, I'll stand on the Lord's side. And if you ever need me, whether you're ready to change your life or not, that doesn't matter to me. If you ever need counsel, I am here for you as I, as I would be for anyone else. Everything that I have is yours. I will serve you as I serve anyone. But I will not compromise the truth of God's word. I do not have the right, and no person, no Christian that you meet who tells you otherwise, they don't have the right either. If you have chosen your path, be confident in the path that you have chosen, and it is not my responsibility to force you to change your mind. I respect your decision. I only need you to understand today that your decision may be founded upon the untruths that I have exposed here today, and maybe you want to rethink the philosophy upon which you're building your confidence to make sure that the structure that you're building on is strong enough to sustain you in the difficult days of life that we all have. And if it is not, and you need help, this church is here. We will not judge you. We have no questions for you. Our arms are open to receive you in love and to nurture you back to health. And if after becoming healthy, you decide to walk back out the doors and continue your life, God bless you. Come back again whenever you need us. We are the church of Jesus Christ and we are here to serve you. I hope I made that abundantly clear. I hope I made that abundantly clear that we do not hate you. We do detest the philosophy upon which you're making your decisions because this philosophy is not from God and it is not in your best interest. But we do not hate any soul. <clears throat> God has directed and God protects your sexuality these are the words of the Lord and not the words of any man. No thought, no feeling, no urge, no movement can change these truths. You do not have to believe these truths for them to be so. 
but be advised, children of God, be advised that to contradict God directly is an abomination. To contradict God directly is a sure sign that you do not believe God's report concerning sex and concerning sexuality. And such defiance will not be entertained in the kingdom of God and such defiance will not be entertained in the church of Jesus Christ. We will not entertain that. Maybe you're on the fence about these truths. Let me give you this advice today. That if you need to wrestle with these things, you should wrestle with these things in, in, in silence. Because you need to understand that you're going to be held accountable for anyone who goes astray if you are having public negotiations about whether what God said is true or a lie. Anyone who falls prey or victim because of it, you will be held accountable. So what should we do with this information? I think my message now has been clear enough. Too much information. We know how to apply these truths to our personal lives. And next week, we're going to discuss how we are to treat, how we are to live with, how we are to evangelize, and how we are to perceive people who may be persuaded by these worldly arguments and who may be following in this ungodly path. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this creation that you have made, for the wisdom and for the wonder of your work in the world. Thank you for your direction. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for clear instruction in your word regarding sex and sexuality. Father God, this is a difficult time that we live in as a nation, as a culture. And for various reasons, we are afraid, many of us, to say the truth. Uncertain. Because what we're seeing all around us makes it seem like this must make sense somehow. Sometimes what we see, what we hear, and what we perceive in the world seems more real, seems more vivid than the truth of your word. And we repent for that. We repent for walking more by sight and not enough by faith. We believe your word concerning our lives, concerning our sex, and concerning our sexuality. And we confess to you right now that we have not yet been made perfect. And neither has any person that we know, but that we are saved by your grace through a faith that is not even our own, and we have nothing in which to boast. We hear your word, Father God, and we desire to follow hard after your will. We desire to do so, Father God, in a way that is not abrasive, that is not antagonistic to this world. Give us the spiritual discernment, Lord God, to know when we are battling against spirits and when we are battling against men. 
help your people to come to understand that when we face the spiritual adversary, that we must be lions, that we must not back down, that we must not cow down before our enemy. That every argument that he develops that comes against the truth of your word, that we will resist and that we will confront. While at the same time, guard those people who may be blinded by those lies. Ensure, Father God, that they can feel, that they can sense, and that they can know the love of the church. That they can see that this battle that we're fighting is not against flesh and blood but that every principality that rises up against your will and your word must fall by the name and the power of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.